I think most people appreciate authenticity and, and realness, especially when it comes in regard to, to Christianity. Here at Sojourn, we're, we're not trying to put on a, a production. We're trying to be open and honest with the truth and real with, with where this world is. And so there's this song from the Lego movie called Everything is Awesome. And sometimes that's how Christianity is portrayed by people, that every single thing is awesome, and yet every single person who has a pulse knows that everything isn't awesome. It's just not reality. It's not being authentic. What's some reality and some authenticity? Hear this. Father of Modern Missions right here says this. This is indeed the valley of the shadow of death to me. Oh, what a load is a barren heart. Oh, that this day could be consigned to oblivion. Much to complain of. Such another dead soul, I think, scarcely exists in the world. Mine is a lonely life indeed. My soul is overwhelmed with depression. It's William Carey. Missionary to India. Another famous missionary, Adoniram Judson. Great Baptist missionary to Burma says this, God to me is the great unknown. I believe in Him, but I find Him not. Another one, David Brainerd, missionary to the American Indian, says this, He was so overwhelmed, and this is consistent in his writing, was so overwhelmed with dejection that I knew not how to live, and I longed for death exceedingly. And my soul was sunk in deep waters, and the floods were ready to drown me. I was so much oppressed that my soul was in a kind of horror. Like, are we having fun yet? Like, it's what you came for, right? Want to hear about suffering? Like, this is the reality of, of Christianity and the life that we live, is that it's not awesome all the time. That it's very hard. And here's the good news about this, is that the, the Scripture is as much about suffering as it is about anything else. It doesn't avoid these issues of suffering. It doesn't avoid pain. It enters into them. Indeed, our God entered into them. So we're not coming to the Scripture or to a God who doesn't know about suffering or what that's like and, and wishes that He could kind of you know, figure this out for us and help us, but He just can't. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, passage on suffering. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in our verses 7-18, through 18, Don't lose heart in suffering. Now some of us need to hear this right now because we might be in the middle of it. But some of us might need to be hearing this to prepare us for what's ahead for us. And and when we're talking about not losing heart in suffering, what we're not talking about is this some sort of fake veneer of joy that we're putting on to where everything is awesome in the midst of intense pain. We're not talking about that. It's not what Paul's saying when he says don't lose heart. He's talking about tear-soaked, not losing heart. He's talking about these scars that you're bearing and you're still not losing heart. He's talking about you have no voice left because you've cried out to God for deliverance and you're not losing heart. He's talking about this one like Christ who is who's shedding blood, who is dripping blood because He's so overwhelmed in the moment, but we're not losing heart and we're still saying, I will be done. We're talking about people like Job who gets decimated in an instant and would still be able to say, not as this happy, clappy person, but as someone who understands the depth of God. And he says, God gave and He takes away and blessed be His name. That's what Paul's talking about when he's talking about not losing heart. And so one of the ways that he gives us to to not lose heart in suffering is to see what suffering is doing. So if you look with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Paul begins with sort of an odd image here. 
For defi- he's, he's defending his ministry. We're still in the middle of that. But he talks about suffering in his ministry, not losing heart in his ministry. But he begins with this odd thing. If you're going to defend your ministry, this is not the image you'd probably want to bring up. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, jars of clay were ordinary. Jars of clay were weak. Jars of clay were cheap. They were disposable. And so Paul isn't defending his ministry by, by pointing to his strength. He says, look how great I am. No, he says, we're jars of clay. We're these clay pots with a treasure inside of us. Paul is characterizing himself and believers with this idea that they are clay pots. Weak, disposable, ordinary, normal. It's a picture of weakness. It's a picture of suffering. This is what we are. And so you might hear stuff like, you're a special snowflake. And I think there's an episode of Daniel Tiger with that very thing. Where you're special and unique and great in your own way. And that is true in some regards, right? But here's what also is true, is that you're a clay pot, that you're pretty ordinary, that you're fragile, that you're weak, and that you're full of suffering. So Paul doesn't commend himself or his ministry and say, look at me, I'm really strong. He says, look at me, I'm a clay pot. Easily thrown away. Easily replaced. He knows his place. He knows his place in the ministry. He knows his place before God. But in these pots, this is the good news, in these pots, there's a treasure. There's something valuable in here. What is this treasure? Well, I think if we look back at verse 6, this is a mouthful, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm going to sum that up and say, that is the gospel. There's this gospel inside of these clay pots. This good news that is emanating out from these clay pots. And so this is what's happening. The gospel is carried around and even held in these vessels that are cheap. They're not strong. They're clay pots. Now normally you would think the treasures would go around in something glorious, powerful, beautiful. But that's not what's going on here. The gospel... This really good news, this really glorious news, this really beautiful news, this really life-altering, powerful, saving news is going around, traveling around in clay pots. And the gospel is placed in these clay pots and it's emanating out from them. But we've got to be honest, this is not how we do it. If I have something special and valuable, what you do with those things is that you put them in really good museums. You put them in beautiful places. You even build beautiful castles or palaces or whatever. And then you put your treasure in there. That's how you do it. You put it on display the right way. Same thing would be true if you were to build a company. You don't say like, alright, let's look at the people. Who's disposable? Let's bring them in and let's start a company that way. Who's the ordinary guy? Let's bring him in and let's, let's get going with that guy. And you wouldn't do that. You'd bring in the best. You'd bring in the most powerful, the strongest, someone who can, who can get you moving forward. Well, you don't put treasures in ordinary, weak, suffering clay pots. But that's exactly what God does because He's gracious to us who are clay pots. So what's God's purpose in doing this? Well, He continues on, verse 7. He says that He puts this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He does this to display His own power. This treasures in these jars of clay, these clay pots, to display the power of God. It's so much so that what we're hoping is that the clay pots aren't even noticed at all. But what people are seeing isn't clay pots, but they're seeing treasure that's coming out of this. So in weak clay pots, God's surpassing power is shown. And so I like what we went to see Paul Tripp this weekend conference. He says this, though, at another time. 
like what he says. He says, weakness is not the big danger to be avoided. What we need to avoid, what you need to avoid, is your delusions of strength. You're a clay pot. We're not trying to avoid the weakness and the suffering, the problems of which we are. We need to avoid, instead, delusions of strength. And here's the issue, is that some of us struggle with this delusion of strength. Some of us struggle with this desire, wanting to display strength, wanting to display power, wanting to display influence, wanting to display wisdom. This is the Corinthians, is it not? This is what they value. This is what they treasure. Powerful. Wise. Strong. This is what Paul's opponents would have said. Look at Paul. He's weak. He can't even speak. He, he walks with a limp. He's got all sorts of issues. Look at us. We've got much, much more than that. Now, you may not be the person that says, I want to promote myself as powerful and strong or whatever, but a lot of the Corinthians weren't there either. What they did want to do is they wanted to associate with them. We want to associate with the strong. Even if we're not strong, we're going to point to him and say, we're with that guy. He's strong. He's powerful. He's wise. We want to be associated with him. And all this makes sense, right? You, you send your best out. The Philistines, they didn't send the runt out. They sent out Goliath. He's the biggest. He's the strongest. This is who you put before the, the foreign enemies and foreign armies. This is how you intimidate. This is how you show your grandeur, your greatness. You put the Goliath out there. You don't send the runt the Olympics, we, don't, we have trials, you have to compete, you have to win. We don't send the guy that doesn't qualify. It doesn't make any sense. You're representing our country. We're going to send the best of the best. We're not going to send just average Joe off the street, ordinary person. They're not going to win. Ambassadors, we send out ambassadors. We don't want just crazy people out there representing us. We want the best people who can represent us well. That's the best way to do it, right? But that's not God's way. It's not how God does it. And so not only is strength this delusion that we all have, because we aren't strong, all of us are in that boat of we are not strong, we need to avoid these delusions of strength. We don't keep our heart beating. We don't keep our lungs going in and out. We, we hold on by a, a thread at all times that God is holding at all times. We don't keep ourselves alive. God does that. We're not strong if we think we are, but we are weak beings. We are clay pots. But our strength... Whatever strength we might have is not how God is shown to be great. It's actually in our weakness. And so it's good that we avoid these delusions of strength. Because that's where God is going to show His power, His greatness. Now here's the opposite side is that some of us don't struggle with wanting to be strong or associate with the strong. Some of us understand our intense weakness, our great weakness. And we struggle with thinking that we're too weak. And isn't this verse great for us? Weakness is not the danger here. Weakness is not the problem. And so we shouldn't look at our weakness and, and be defeated by it. And say, well, you don't understand. Like, I can't talk to my neighbor because I have nothing to say. I don't have any answers to these questions. I couldn't live overseas and be a missionary. I, I, how would I even do that? I'm not strong enough to do that. I'm weak. But we don't have to be defeated by our weakness. You see, the weak have treasure inside of them that is emanating out of them. The weak are the ones that this is how God's power is displayed. It's displayed not through strength, but through weakness, through clay pots. One pastor says this, Ordinary people, people with problems and faults and stubborn habits and personal weaknesses, could you just say, that is us. These are the kind of people who can be used mightily in the mission of God because it's not about their abilities to do things for God. But it is about His ability to work through them. This treasure is 
surging out from clay pots. And isn't that an encouragement to all of us who are weak? That the gospel is going forward, and it's not going forward in these awesome, good-looking, beautiful urns. It's going forward in clay pots that are easily disposed of, that are easily replaced, that are ordinary, that are weak, and that are suffering. This treasure isn't being held back by our weakness. It's emanating through all the cracks in our lives. So don't lose heart in weakness and in suffering. Don't fear weakness. Don't be defeated by weakness. God is using this to display His power. And because surpassing power belongs to God, and not to these jars of clay, Paul can say this in verse 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Suffering and affliction are in the perplexing circumstances and being struck down. They all happen. And you may not have had any of those happen to you yet, but likely it's coming. And Paul experienced all of these. But Paul hasn't been undone by these things. There's this power behind him that is holding him up. It's not his own strength. He's constantly, consistently pointing to the power of God, which sustains him, which holds him, which propels him forward. He's admitting, I'm a clay pot, but God is powerful. His power keeps coming through me. He is working through this clay pot vessel for his goodness and glory to be displayed. And so he understands that his suffering, it's it's doing something. And that's what we need to realize If we're going to face suffering, we need to see what suffering is doing. If you look at verse 10, Paul says, Paul says this, He is always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Paul is constantly suffering. He's constantly faced with death. Not just like, kind of like, oh man, I think I'm going to die. Like, no, people are around you with rocks wanting to kill you. And even thought you were dead one time. They left you for dead. This happened to Paul. You can talk about it more in 2 Corinthians. He is constantly, literally being given over to death. He's carrying around this body of death. But Paul's suffering follows the pattern of another. It follows the pattern of Jesus. Jesus is the one who entered into this world of suffering, this broken, fallen world. Entered into it and didn't just escape suffering and pain. Jesus enters into this so much that He is put to death. Death on a cross. He enters into this. But guess what? His death doesn't stop with His death. It starts producing life. The death of Jesus starts producing life. Life in people who look upon Him and believe in Him. It produces life. Jesus' death brings life. He wasn't relieved on the cross. He died. He went all the way. And what that accomplishes is life for many. And now, Jesus' suffering is being embodied, not by Christ, but by His disciples, by these jars of clay. And His disciples are now given over to death. And in being given over to death, they're, they're embodying the suffering of Jesus. And so these disciples, their death doesn't produce life like Jesus' does. But it embodies Jesus' suffering. And from that, Jesus is producing life. Because people are seeing not just the suffering of the disciple, not just the suffering of Paul. They're seeing the suffering of Christ. So Christ's life, the life that comes out from His death, is mediated or it flows through the suffering of Paul. That's what Paul is saying here. And as Paul embodies the suffering of Jesus, death 
and life are both at work. 11 and 12 say this, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul's suffering is a means that God is using to produce life in others. He says this is happening for Jesus' sake, but it's producing life in you, Corinthians. Paul's suffering, his dying, his carrying around this death is working life in people. This is what's going on here. So what is suffering doing? It's a big question. What is suffering doing in Paul's life? What is suffering doing in our lives? It's displaying the power of God and weakness. And beyond that, it's also displaying the suffering of Jesus. The one who was crucified. The one who, if you, if you are to trust in Him, you have to know that He was killed. That He died. This is essential to the Gospel. That He is crucified. And that He was crucified for a reason. And that by believing in the death and life and resurrection of Jesus, life is now at work. So suffering is accomplishing something. And if we're honest, once again, likely none of us would ever choose suffering. We would never choose pain. But look at what we're seeing from this passage. God is using it to do what we'd all, if we're Christians, would hopefully want to be done. Don't we want God's power to be displayed? As Christians, we ought to want God's power to be on display, not our own. That's what's happening through suffering. As Christians, we want the life of Jesus to be known. We want them to see the death of Jesus. They might experience life, newness of life. And that is what's happening in suffering. Suffering is is doing something. It's accomplishing something. And most of us, we need this radical reorientation of suffering. We see suffering as something to avoid. Something to escape. Something to not have any part of if we can choose. But affliction, persecution, being struck down, always being given over to death, those things are what can display the power of God and the life of Christ. So bodily suffering is accomplishing something, is accomplishing things that wouldn't be accomplished if there was no suffering. That makes sense? Like something is happening in and through this suffering that wouldn't happen if the suffering wasn't happening. And so suffering is brought into our lives for this very purpose. And so we don't despise suffering. We, we endure it and we embrace it because it's doing something in us and through us. And so Paul's getting at us that don't lose heart in your suffering. It's, it's doing something. Death may be at work in us, but life is also at work in others. Don't lose heart. But being given over to death does not sound like much fun, right? I mean, I warned you earlier on, like, this may not be a fun journey for all of us. Like, being given over to death does not sound like something you want to sign up for. Uh, I'm afflicted all the time. I'm being given over to death. I'm perplexed. I'm struck down. Don't sign me up for that. So, what are we to think about that? How are we to embrace that kind of life? Why would anybody want to embrace that kind of life? I think Paul gets at it when he he talks about not just what suffering is doing, but a little bit more pushed in. What is suffering accomplishing? So Paul explains why he has confidence and boldness to press on and press in in life and ministry in the midst of suffering. If you look in verse 13, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, and we also believe, and so we also speak. Now he's quoting here from Psalm 116, which is a psalm where the psalmist is brought really low, and yet God rescues him. 
They're, they're in great and utter need, and yet there's deliverance from God. And so what Paul is doing is he's kind of just joining in to other saints who have suffered and have yet been delivered. Who have suffered and yet they still speak. They're still moving forward. There's still some boldness. There's still courage to not stop and be timid and scared. But to continue on speaking. Out of deliverance the psalmist speaks. Out of deliverance Paul goes on to speak. On the heels of trust comes boldness in speaking. On the heels of us being delivered and trusting and growing in our faith and love to God. So we grow in our boldness of speech before others. And so... What does Paul trust in? If you look in verse 14, he says this, Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. Paul lived a life of dying. Constantly being given over to death. But he knows that that's his life now, but there's a life beyond that life that he's looking forward to. Paul's hope is built upon the resurrection. This isn't Easter Sunday, but the resurrection is constantly before us, especially when we talk about suffering. Paul's hope is all on the resurrection, that if that weren't true, then he is in trouble. It keeps Paul going in the midst of affliction, in the midst of being given over to death over and over, in the midst of being struck down and persecuted. The resurrection keeps him going. There may be a ton of suffering, and there was in Paul's life and ministry, but there's a resurrection. That's what he trusts in. I remember a couple years ago, right around Easter, for some reason or another, and it, it, sometimes it doesn't have any reason at all, grew discouraged. Just as like, man, this is Easter time. This ought to be the time when Christians are the happiest, right? When we're experiencing great joy, and we're singing about it from rooftops, and we're always smiling, and everything is great, everything is awesome all the time, right? But that just was not my experience. And I was talking to one of my friends, and I just said like, what, what can you do? Like, give me something that, that will encourage me to, to preach or to live my life this week. And he said something so simple and so basic, but changed my life and stuck with me. He just said this. He said, the empty tomb is why you can preach. And we could insert, not just preach, the empty tomb is why you can live. The empty tomb is why you cannot lose heart in suffering. The empty tomb is why fill in the blank. That is the reason. This is what Paul is looking to Jesus was raised. I'm going to be raised with Him. That empty tomb is why I can keep moving forward. That empty tomb is what helps me embrace this suffering that God has brought my way. That's exactly what Paul is saying. This is why he continues on in ministry. So brothers and sisters, don't lose heart in suffering. Suffering may be hard. It's probably always hard. That's why it's called suffering. But the resurrection is true. The resurrection, it speaks. It's speaking into our suffering and saying, don't fear this. This isn't going to be forever. Don't fear those who can just kill the body. There's much more than that. Don't grow timid. Don't be discouraged. Continue to press on. There's a treasure in you. God's power is being displayed in weakness. Speak out. It goes on in verse 15 to say, For it is all for your sake. So as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. As Paul is delivered and trusts in God and in the resurrection, he grows more bold in his speaking, more bold in his ministry, more bold in his proclamation of the gospel. And as he does that, what is happening? Grace is being extended to more and more people. 
As Paul carries out his ministry, as Paul continues to speak, grace is being extended. And as grace is extended, people are receiving the gospel. Thanksgiving is going on. Thanksgiving is going up to God. And all of this to God's glory. This is what's happening. Grace is being extended. Thanksgiving is being increased. And the glory of God is being magnified and increased all along the way. So I like how one guy says it, one commentator says that the suffering that Paul and his fellow ministers experience in the course of authentic ministry not only manifests the glory of the gospel, but also results in greater glory being given to God. Isn't that our goal? And it's happening through suffering, persevering in the ministry of the gospel, persevering in the midst of suffering. It's accomplishing something. It accomplished something in Paul's life. It's going to accomplish something in our lives as grace extends out through our ministries. And, and, and don't mistake that we have ministries. If you have been saved by the gospel, then you have not just been saved and put on a shelf. You have been put out on the front lines, given the gospel to be taken out to the ends of the earth. You are in a ministry, and grace is to be extended through that ministry. And as grace is extended, we want thanksgiving to increase. We want the glory of God to increase. So that the glory of God fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. So why does Paul have such boldness to speak and weakness and pain and consistent suffering? Because the resurrection is true, because grace is extending, because God is getting glory. And that is why we exist. Amen. This is why you exist. If you didn't know today, we want you to know the sum and substance of life is that you live to the glory of God. That's why you live. That's why you have breath. So we want you to, if you don't know God, to repent and trust in Him and live to that end. That you might bring glory to this great God. He is worthy of it. But the resurrection is true. Grace is extending. God is getting glory. You exist for this purpose. Get on board with it. And that means to not lose heart in the midst of suffering. Isn't the glory of God worth suffering for? We, we suffer for all sorts of things. We will suffer to look a certain way. We won't eat certain things. We'll, we'll punish our bodies. Going to a gym, running, CrossFit, whatever you want to do. We, we suffer for, for our kids. Sometimes it's not voluntary. We don't sleep much. Maybe that's not the one we choose. But we, we sacrifice, right? To, to have children. We sacrifice to find out. Like, I, could, I could spend some money on them or I could spend some money on me. Like, we, we suffer in, in for their good. We suffer for our jobs. We're willing to... Suffer so that maybe we could get an advancement, a raise, be placed in another. We're working to position ourselves well, and sometimes that means suffering, and we even embrace it at times. And so the question before us isn't the isn't the glory of God worth suffering for? Isn't the glory of God worth the suffering that we could take? Isn't it worth speaking about grace and extending that out? Isn't the glory of God worth those things? Suffering is accomplishing something. It's doing something. God's glory is continuing to to spread out as we suffer and continue in our boldness of speech. As we continue to trust in and put our hope in this resurrection and speak about the gospel, God's glory is going forward. And it's worth suffering for. So Paul knows what his suffering is doing in his life. He knows what it's accomplishing in the earth. But he also knows something else. What his suffering is preparing Paul knows that his suffering is doing something, accomplishing something, but it's also preparing something for him. If you look again in verse 16, he says, So we do not lose hearts. And he comes back again to where he was at in verse 1. In chapter 4, it says, Don't lose heart. 
And again he says it in verse 16. Don't lose heart. In your suffering, don't lose heart. In fact, he's so concerned that we not lose heart that he, he tells us these realities and he doesn't want to lose heart. So he says this. Even though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. If you put a treasure in a jar of clay and you let that jar of clay go around, like that jar of clay is going to get beat up. It's going to get battered, bruised, and cracked. If you carry it around enough, it is going to suffer. It's going to start to deteriorate. We are these clay pots that the outer nature is wasting away. Outwardly, physically, we are all in this one man and his name is Adam. This was the first man that was ever created. He was created out of dust. He was a man who sinned against God and because of that, death entered the world. Not only his own death, but the death of other things as well. Creation is now underneath this curse. And we are in this Adam. We are in him so that... That means we are not only sinful, but that we, we, we've inherited these bodies that are going to die, that are deteriorating, that are moving toward death. We are mortal. We are from dust into the dust. We are going to return. But for believers, for those who have trusted in Christ, for those who have repented of their sins and turned to Jesus, for those, that's not the only reality that's true of us. Yes, we do have this outward physical body that is deteriorating, that is going to death, that is wasting away. That's true of every person, but for believers, there's this inward. This inward reality that's different from the outward. That it's, it is not wasting away. What does he say? Our inner self is it's being renewed day by day. There's this inner nature that's not dying and it's not dead. In fact, it's going the opposite way. It's being renewed over and over and over again. Because this inner nature isn't taking on the first Adam, it's taking on the second Adam. We're new in Christ. He used the second Adam who didn't fall where Adam fell and who came not to bring death into the world. He came bringing life into the world. So that now that all those who are in Him experience life and are inwardly going to be renewed day by day by day. And as part of renewed humanity, believers can say this in verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Suffering is preparing us for something. It's preparing for glory. Paul, he speaks of his affliction here as slight and momentary. And yet if you know anything about Paul's life, you ought to know that his suffering is not slight and it's not momentary. It is brutal and it is harsh and it is constant. So why in the world does Paul say that my suffering is slight and momentary? What is he saying here? He's saying that it's momentary, that it's, it's short, doesn't last long. He's saying that it's slight, that it's, it's, it's insignificant, not a big deal. And yet it is a big deal. Like intrinsic all this suffering was brutal. It hurts and it lasted a long time. He was constantly suffering. And so what is, what is Paul talking about? Is he just a liar? Is he not getting on board with this authentic Christianity that we want to talk about where we're not avoiding the pain and the struggles? Is he, is he saying everything is awesome, don't worry about the suffering, everything is great? He's not. And here's why. What makes his sufferings slight, what makes his sufferings momentary and insignificant and short, is not the sufferings themselves. Because those were brutal and awful. 
Here's what makes them insignificant. is that when they're compared to the eternal weight of glory that they are preparing Him for. That's what makes them slight and momentary. In comparison to these things, He said these sufferings are nothing. Insignificant. You know, to my kids, I'm pretty big. And, well, for now. Like, I'm strong. They think I'm fast. I can outrun every one of them. I can probably dunk on them when we get the little basketball goal in the house. Like, I... I can handle them. They think I'm big and strong and tough for now. But to an NFL lineman, like I'm a twig. They would snap me in half and throw me on the sideline. It would be no big deal. 6'4", like 300 pounds, like I can't handle that. I'm tiny compared to that. In comparison, I'm insignificant for them. But to my kids, like I'm a lot bigger. And this is what Paul is getting at. In comparison to the glory that awaits us because of our suffering, our suffering is slight and it's momentary. It's insignificant. He says in Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not worth comparing. That's what he's saying. Like We shouldn't even compare it because it's not even worth the comparison because it's not even a game. The glory that awaits us is so surpassing, so much greater than, so much better than, that we don't even compare them together. It's insignificant suffering versus a tonnage of glory. And that's what he's saying here. A weight of glory, a tonnage of glory. If you can get that picture in your head. It's momentary suffering that lasts for a little bit versus eternity. It's insignificant. doesn't mean much in comparison. And this is what's happening. is that All his suffering is preparing him for something. It's preparing an eternal tonnage of glory for Paul. God is at work in his suffering for his future Good and glory. Think about that. Like That ought to take our breath away a little bit. Because God is doing something in His suffering. In Paul's suffering in the, in the present time. As he's on the earth suffering and doing ministry. That is preparing him a future good beyond all imagination. This is what God is doing in his life. And so believers, our suffering is preparing something for us. That staggers the imagination. That's a ton of glory. And you know what? Like, it's really hard to like say, well, it's just a ton of glory. I don't know. Like, who knows that? It's, you can't even put your finger on it. That's, what, that's what's good about it, I think. Is that we're not just imagining what it could be like. We can't even imagine because it's that good to make sufferings like Paul faced to be slight and momentary. That's how great this glory is. That we can't even imagine what it would look like. I can't even possibly think, what would that be? And I think that's great news. Ton of glory. Don't know what that looks like or what that means. I hope it's really great. I think it really will be. So what kind of glory is like that? That suffering is is nothing in comparison? Some really great glory. But for some of us, like, some of you have suffered immensely. And and we're not trying to to say, like, your suffering doesn't matter. It's insignificant. It's light. It hasn't been hard and overwhelming for you. So to some of you, maybe it seems like, like, this is kind of unbelievable. Like, in, in light of what I've suffered, how could a ton of glory make up for it? You ever thought that way? What could possibly make up for the death of a child? And how much suffering I've faced over and over and over again as I wake up to that nightmare day by day? Or how could glory make up for the loss of a spouse or a loved one? Or make up for my own afflictions that I face every single day? This is where I feel like C.S. Lewis gives a helpful statement. He says this, They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. 
but not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. It's kind of what Paul's getting at, right? It's, it's slight and it's momentary in comparison to the tonnage of glory. It doesn't even matter. It's insignificant. Somehow, someway, God is going to turn those things into glory for us. They're preparing glory for us because suffering can be great. But we have to trust in and know that the glory that awaits is greater. It's weightier. It's better. It's eternal. And so don't lose heart in your suffering. So what does Paul do when he's suffering and when he's given over to death? Like what one pastor said, he says when he's hurting, he fixes his eyes not on how heavy the hurt is, but on how heavy the glory will be because of the hurt. Fixing his eyes, not on the heavy suffering, which his suffering was heavy. But on how heavy this glory is going to be when we get there. Suffering is preparing him for something. And so we, like Paul, have to fix our gaze beyond the suffering, as Paul does. He says in verse 18, As we look to the things that are, that are not that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's hope... Paul's boldness, Paul's ability to not lose heart is not in this world. It's not in his present circumstance. It's not in his power. It's not in his wisdom. It's not in his, all his greatness. It's not in, oh, look at these Corinthians, we're doing good work here. It's in the future. Amen. Paul looks to a greater future than what he has now. He's paying careful attention to it. He's giving thought to it. He's aware of it. And because he knows those things, because he's aware of those things, because he sees them as temporary, the things that are seen, he doesn't lose heart. He knows the seen things, those are passing. But the unseen, those are the things that are eternal. So Paul's hope in his future and in the future determines where he fixes his gaze. And it keeps him from losing heart. One early church father said this, The leg does not feel the chain if the mind is in heaven. Why was Paul so willing to suffer and die? Why have disciples all over the globe been willing since the gospel went out to them to suffer and die for the sake of Jesus' name? Why? Part of it has to do because their mind is not in the here and now. Chains may be in the here and now. Suffering may be in the here and now. But their mind is someplace else. Their mind is in heaven. Why have people joyfully gone to their death? We're not talking joyfully once again where they're just... Singing praise songs and happy clappy like they are in some sense they're held and constrained by joy even as they face it. Why? Because their mind is in heaven. It's somewhere else. And we too need to have minds, believers, that are not in the here and now. If we are going to endure suffering, we need to have this future orientation that is looking forward not to these seen things, but looking to the unseen. In one sense... Having a future orientation is not hard for us at all. All of us have some sort of future orientation. We live with a future orientation. Let me give you an example. You probably have some sort of retirement plan. Many of you have put money into a retirement plan. You're you're living with a future orientation. You're thinking ahead. Like I I might need to prepare for, for this that comes 
later on in life. Or maybe you have a, a savings account for your kids to go to college. You're, you're living with the future orientation. So you're, you're doing something now because of something that you think will happen in the future. In your jobs, you might be willing to give in some areas now because you might think that you will receive something in the future. All of us live with some sort of future orientation. Our life planning, though, is still a little bit shallow. And here's the problem. Our life planning shouldn't be just the next 5, 10, 15, 30, 50 years. Our life planning ought to include the next 50 trillion years. This is what Paul is doing. He's looking not to the seen, but to the unseen. Because those things are eternal. He's looking to the next 50 trillion years. And so should we. Part of our plan ought to involve this persevering and suffering for the next 50 years, 20 years, 5 years, however long we have left, because we're planning for the next trillion. Most of the time, our future orientations that we live with is much too short-sighted. Much too near-sighted. Only thinking of the here and now. And so the encouragement is to make it longer. Don't just live your life for the next 50, 30, 20 years. Live your life for the next trillion years and many more on top of that. That's what Paul is doing. That's what he's looking to in his life. See, the problem isn't just that we're short-sighted though. There's more than that because likely most of us haven't done what he does in verse 18. We haven't really looked to the things that are unseen. We haven't really given consideration to those things. We haven't really given thought to those things. We haven't thought about the weight of glory. We failed to give much thought or consideration to these unseen things. And, and that is easy for us to do, is it not? The things that are seen are here and now. We can touch them, we can feel them, we can see them. The things that are unseen, they're unseen. It's difficult to give thought to them, but this is what Paul's doing. He's putting his mind there. He's setting his mind there. He's being intentional with it. He's giving thought to it. He's considering it. He's thinking about it. He's meditating on it. And this is where we need each other because we're so prone to be focused on the here and now. This is why it's helpful that when we come together weekly, we set our minds in some form or fashion on the unseen and the eternal. So we sing songs together that say stuff like this. Absent from flesh. Oh, blissful thought. What joy that moment brings. That moment, the one in the future, the next trillion years, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're singing together. That's what we're reminding each other of. We sing this, when we've arrived at eternity's shore, where death is just a memory and fear is no more, tears are no more, what are we doing? We're entering in. As the wedding bells ring, we're coming together and we're singing. You're beautiful. We're thinking about the next trillion years. We sing that when on earth I breathe no more. The prayer that we was mixed often with tears before, we're going to sing upon happier shores. Thy will be done. And there's many more I could go on. But if we are really looking toward this unseen, if we are paying attention to it, if we are aware of it, then our orientation is different. We're not thinking 50 years, we're thinking trillion years. Are we, are we doing that? Are we doing, as Paul says, to look Not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are transient, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, those are the things that are eternal. Do we only only consider what we can see? Do we only consider our pain and our suffering because we feel it, it's here and now? Or are we saying, we're not going to lose heart because there's unseen things here? Another way to ask that is, is where are you stressed? Where are you angry? 
Where are you anxious? Those areas are the areas where you're not looking to the things that are unseen. Because if you were looking to the things that are unseen in those areas, they would seem slight and momentary. So we look to the unseen. We look to heaven. We ought to consider heaven. This place where we get visions from it in the scripture. Not many, but we get some. And this open door into heaven is this place beyond imagination. Where people who have had huge struggles, people who have been martyred, lost their lives for the sake of Christ, have come together and are singing around the throne, not like, oh man, I guess it was worth it. Worthy is that Lamb who was slain. Holy is this God who I'm seeing upon the throne who is high and lifted up. And they're singing it to one another and it's resounding on and on and on for all eternity. This is the place where it says there's not going to be tears anymore. Nor pain, nor suffering, nor sin, nor crying, nor this curse of death. There's only life. Nor this curse of thorns, nor this mortal body anymore. We're going to put on immorality. That's heaven. And heaven is beckoning us, so don't lose heart in suffering. Suffering is, is doing something. Doing something in our lives. It's displaying the power of God. It's shining forth the life of Christ as we embody His death, that suffering is accomplishing something, as we continue in our boldness, trusting in the resurrection, speaking the grace of God, it's being extended, God is being thanked, His glory is going forward, it's filling the earth as the waters cover the sea, suffering is preparing something for us, an eternal weight of glory that's beyond imagination, all of this is happening in suffering, so don't lose heart. So as we think about suffering, and about the unseen. This is the things we've got to look to. Let us not forget that suffering will soon end. Jesus came to rescue His creation, His creatures from the effects of the fall. Jesus, and another way to say this, is that Jesus came to rescue us from suffering forevermore. He came to save, to redeem, to renew, to pull us out of these corrupt bodies in this broken and fallen place. This rescue mission for Christ couldn't be accomplished apart from suffering. So Jesus enters into it and He suffers for it. This is the cross. Jesus suffers so that we might not, and I like how one pastor says it, says Jesus had to pay for our sins so that someday He can end evil and suffering without ending us. This is the gospel in a nutshell, is it not? You deserve suffering. You deserve to die. You deserve the judgment of God. And the only way to take out suffering, the only way to relieve you of the suffering that you rightly deserve from God, is that God Himself suffer in your place. And this is what Jesus does. He enters this world and He suffers in our place that He might end suffering and not still end us. Because those two should have gone together. We have a gracious God. And so for believers, if, you, if you've trusted in that, suffering is going to end. If you haven't trusted that, we'd say please trust in that. Because judgment awaits those who haven't trusted in Christ. And that your suffering will not end forevermore. It's the reality of the Bible. But, but God is loving. 
God is gracious. He extends to us this grace that He wants to end your suffering without ending you. And He does it in Himself, in Jesus Christ. So for believers, one day as we sing, our Savior is going to rend the skies, the, the trump's going to resound, the Lord's going to descend, and we will say, it is well with my soul. Suffering is over. It has ended. So don't lose heart. Let's pray together. God, I want to thank You for entering suffering. We don't have a God who's separated from all the pains and trials that we face. So we have a God that we can run to in our suffering. That we can confide in, that we can trust, that we can follow. And I pray for us as sojourners, strangers, exiles, foreigners in this land, that you would help us to trust you as we journey homeward, heavenward. Help us not lose heart. God, for those who don't understand the gospel, who haven't believed in Jesus, I would pray that they wouldn't be encouraged unless they'd take Christ. That you would draw them to yourself. They'd turn from their sins and trust in you. And that they too could celebrate with us, even as we sing, that one day suffering is going to end, our Lord is going to descend, and we're going to say it's well. We're going to praise Him forevermore. I pray that more would trust in that message. God, thank You for ending suffering without ending us. We want You to come again and finally and fully do it forevermore. We look forward to that day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And if you're in a place where you're losing heart, I encourage you. Like, we're here together. We're sojourners together. Turn to someone beside you and say, I'm losing heart. Would you pray for me? Or maybe you need to come and talk to someone else. Go to your groups and share these things so we not lose heart. We're journeying in this together. Encourage one another in these things.